This is E Boogie, the artist formerly known as Eric. You're now listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What's up, guys? This is AC, and welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. We're here right on the eve before the NBA Finals, and with me we got my guy, my fellow Knicks fan, Rahul, joining in for a preview betting pod. What's up? What's up, everybody? Back at it again. So excited! This is gonna be this is gonna be great. I can't tell you how hyped I am. I, I love this NBA Finals. You have a contrast in styles. You have kind of this older generation facing the younger generation. But it's weird because the Warriors are this older team, but they have all these young guys kind of supporting them, whereas it's almost the inverse with the Celtics. They have this, this young core, but then they have, they're supported by the likes of you know Al Horford and, and guys who have been around the block a bit. So it's going to be really fun to watch. Yeah, for sure. I think the roster buildup kind of really is is similar in the sense that like you said you have to have young legs kind of to help you through these long playoff runs and then you have to have some experience to go along with it and and the blend of that is where you get where you get people to play the most flawless basketball yeah no doubt but before we get to the nba finals rahul you and i happened to be at a wedding together when this game seven of the heat celtic series was going on and we were, we were tuning in for a variety of reasons as we were getting slowly wasted. But we both had the opportunity afterward to really watch it in detail. I mean, I guess at the moment, I didn't quite realize just what an insane end to that game seven there really was. You're talking about a seven-point lead by the Celtics basically evaporating and Jimmy Butler having a chance to win the game. So just watching that again, what was your reaction to how that played out? Well, it, it might have been the drinks and stuff, but I truly had no idea there was a real chance the, that the Heat were going to take the lead in the last 30 seconds of the game. Oh, my God. When I saw that replay of the Jimmy Butler pull-up, I was like, I cannot believe I had this much money riding on this game, and I had no idea how close I was to losing it all. Dude, the craziest thing about this to me was I didn't think that the Heat had a snowball's chance of hell of even winning Game 6 in Boston after what we had seen from Jimmy Butler in Games 3, 4, and 5. And then in Game 6, he turns into this demon and, and he just single-handedly obliterates the Boston Celtics. And in Game 7, the Miami Heat were down by about 17 points in that first half and they clawed it back to a 6 points at halftime and they just kind of stayed within range. But then towards the end, it really did seem over. Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown had some of the most absurd possessions down the stretch that I can ever remember seeing from a team that was on the verge of accomplishing something big, right? Like this is exactly the situation where you kind of do a little bit of a pre-vet offense. No, these guys were jacking up shots with 10 seconds to go, 12 seconds to go on the shot clock. It was, it was just like bizarre. And then, you know, Kyle Lowry was doing random things. And next thing you know, it literally did come down to one shot that could have swung the entire series and who went to an NBA finals. You know, I'm looking through the game log and just to kind of remind ourselves about what happened, but the Celtics had a 13-point lead with three minutes and 35 seconds to go. I looked at my phone. I saw like 11-12 at the end of the fourth quarter. I was like, all right, we're good. Let's party the rest of the night. And then this <laughs> happens. I'm going through this log. I watched the replay, and it's like you said. They're jacking up shots before the end of the shot clock. They're not getting the ball to Tatum. You have Smart taking three shots in a minute. You have Jalen Brown doing another offensive foul turnover. And then you're going to have – when does Tatum touch the ball here? He doesn't have a single shot off in the last three and a half minutes. How is that even possible? Yeah, I I really thought that game was over, but it wasn't. I mean, part of it – you know, we got to get some credit to the Miami Heat, a team that was really injured, didn't have Tyler Hero for much of the series. Jimmy Butler looked like he was limping around, especially in the middle part of, of this series. They fought, you know, they did what they could do. They took it as far as it could possibly go, despite, in my opinion, being a pretty limited offensive team at times. And I, I just got to say, you know, it makes me wonder about this Boston Celtics team. Because on the one hand, they have gone through pretty 
elite competition, right? Like they knocked out Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Then they knocked out Giannis. Then they knocked out the number one seeded Miami Heat. But in the second and third rounds, they were facing very injured teams. No Chris Middleton. Basically, half the Miami Heat team was banged up in some way, shape, or form. Now, granted, so was Boston to some extent. Yeah, and to but be it, fair, everyone's banged up at the end of the year. I, I mean, yeah, that, that we can't hold sure. against them. No, I, I'm just in terms of gauging where this team is. It, 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 I almost felt more confident about Boston before this conference finals than I do afterward, which is it's kind of irrational because they ended up winning ultimately. But I mean, they were shot away from losing to a team that they should have put away you know, two games ago. Yeah, game six uh, was the one that really made me question my Celtics pick um, to win the finals. Um, I had no idea they were going to be capable of losing that, losing that game. And to be honest, they had a three-point lead at the end of that game. And they should have been able to put them away, but they just couldn't. This this Miami team, like Jason Voorhees, man, coming back from the dead yeah. over and over again. They're just they're so physical. And that's another thing that I kind of do want to – I don't want to give the Celtics a pass, but – the level of physicality that they faced in the last two rounds, starting with the Milwaukee series, now the Miami series, playing every other day, had to have worn them out. And, you know, when people are worn out like this, you don't got the legs and the talent discrepancy sometimes gets mucked up in the in kind of the mosh pit, in the in the rugby style of basketball that these guys are playing towards the end of these games. Let's not forget, you know, Scott Foster was ref in Game 7. I'm sure, you know, when I'm looking at those, these replays, the Miami Heat were into, into the Celtics, and they were allowed to play with the level of physicality. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how this kind of progresses. These four days off will, will do wonders, I think, for the Celtics, for Robert Williams' knee, for Marcus Smart's legs. And then on the other side, it will help the Warriors as well because, like you said, their main – stars are a little bit on the older side compared to the Boston side. So I think this rest will allow us to get the best product on the field. And that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited to watch high quality basketball. And yeah, that's one of my favorite things about how the NBA finals is done, where they do have these two days between games. Like, you know, for instance, game one is on Thursday and we have the next game on Sunday. And, and I think that leads to a higher quality of basketball. But I am a little bit worried about the cumulative effect of going through two grueling, as you said, very physical series. And you know, the Boston Celtics have to sort of muster up the energy to chase around Steph and Clay and Jordan Poole and all these guys for 48 minutes. And, and the Warriors are one of those teams that, man, if you make a slight mistake, they're punishing you. So I, I'm, I'm worried about them from that standpoint. I think the Celtics, when I'm just looking at them as an overall team, I, I look at them as an overall more talented more balanced team but it, they're really a team that's like greater than the sum of their parts and they need all of those parts to be you know really humming at 100 percent. like we can't have rob williams limping around like he was at the end of last series and expect them to do anything here so i i, I the, the health of the boston celtics is one of the big swing factors of this nba finals to me well you just mentioned it that's i think their biggest key right the celtics across the board are bigger than the warriors all right, their big men are more talented. And if Robert Williams is flying around and you can't play him off the floor, then then the size discrepancy will really, really take effect against the Warriors. And you know what? On the other hand of the um, having a grueling schedule and now coming to play in the finals, I think they might also be like, oh, my God, we can move. We can run. We're not being yeah. bodied to the floor. Like the level of physicality that they got the last two rounds. I'm not saying the Warriors are a soft team, but they're – they're not the Heat. They're not the. They're not the Bucks. They're not gonna beat you up, and they're not gonna muck it up the same way. They play pretty basketball, but I think that might actually work out nicer for the Celtics, who I think sometimes offensively have a challenge when the game gets really physical and really broken down, and you can get that ball out of Tatum's hands. I love this point. I, I think. It's fair to say that the Celtics were in absolute rock fights for two straight rounds. And it's not that the Warriors are not good at defense. The Warriors were the number two defense in the NBA this regular season, only after the Celtics. So they are no slouches. But it's just a different style of playing defense. They're a team that certainly is capable, but they're not trying to overwhelm you with the physical dominance and, and just wear on you. More, It's more like strategic, tactical, Draymond Green masterminding everything. You know, they're not 
easy to score on, but I could see it being almost like a little bit relieving to not have to go against that brutal beating that the Celtics took for two straight rounds. Yeah, the Celtics have trouble dribbling the basketball. Jalen Brown has trouble dribbling the basketball. Marcus Smart, he's he not so much, but he's not the high efficiency playmaking point guard either. You know, he has other skill sets that he brings to the table. So, you know, when the Heat and the Bucks were like pressuring the Celtics, bringing up the ball 24 seconds out of the shot clock, really getting into their ball handlers, making it difficult for them. I think that the Celtics will be better for it. And I don't think they'll be as affected by what Golden State does um, as they did in the last two rounds. So, you know, back to the Heat, just real quick. I am so impressed with the way that they kind of hung around there against, I think, a better team. I think they really, like, big-brothered a little bit, the Celtics. And I think um, Jimmy Butler, like, is there a bigger Jekyll and Hyde, like, kind of player sometimes? Like, this guy, when he comes to the playoffs, when it's really time to go get a bucket, like, all of his skill levels get, like, a plus 10. I don't know where it comes from, but he just wants it more. Yeah, it's especially interesting because I, I think we all sort of limit Jimmy Butler and we, where we rank him in part because of his clear deficiency as a shooter. But somehow even that kind of disappears when the he was hitting threes. What was going on? It's not the first time either, right? I mean, of course, in the middle of the series, he didn't look very good. In fact, I would say he was a net negative at times. But I, I think he was injured for those games. So I'm going to give him a pass. But yeah, I totally agree with you. He, he's he's a one of a kind player in that way. I think he's already if, if he hadn't already done so before in his career i think you know especially given the low bar of the hall of fame i think now he's a unquestioned hall of famer yeah i think he's, maybe some people have might have maybe some people might have bubble like that chalked that first uh miami heats run to like the bubble and you know it kind of just being a special situation special type of team camaraderie heat culture blah 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 but i think to do it again bring them to the eastern conference finals game seven against this team i think it just cements the fact that when you want a game to win like, maybe not 82 games, right? Maybe not regular season, who do you want? But if you want a game to win, he jumps at least 5, 10 players in that ranking. I mean, the great example there, right, is, is James Harden, a guy who I think season in, season out, every person in the NBA, maybe not this last season, but certainly before that, would, would say that Harden was the better player. And yet somehow, every year, James Harden's numbers shrink in the playoffs consistently. In fact, he has one of the the largest drops from a production perspective, whether they go by efficiency or by shooting percentage of any player in NBA history. Meanwhile, Jimmy Butler seems to go the other way. Now, not not every year. Like, he was pretty bad last year in the playoffs where the Bucks swept them. But he is a guy who, when it matters, has proven that he, he's willing to step up. And, he, and he's able to, too. Yeah, hats off to the Heat. All right. What about the Western Conference Finals? I mean, we can, we can talk about that briefly. It was a... Yeah. Uh, Really not entertaining series to me personally. I I really expected a lot more from the Mavs, in part because I just thought that the, the Luca would kind of switch hunt, and you know there were guys who attack on the Golden State Warriors, but I think the Warriors made a couple of really interesting adjustments. One thing is they hedged a lot, especially on those pick and rolls involving Steph. They also doubled a lot more than I ever really seen them do before, and basically dared anyone but Luca to beat them, and the Mavs prove that they didn't have that on the other hand the Mavs while having you know a good defensive reputation and playing pretty well defensively the whole playoffs could not deal with what the Warriors are doing on offense they just couldn't deal with it the Warriors are a very unique team nobody plays basketball like them and and I think the Mavs learned that lesson I'm actually very curious how you know when we talk about this finals how the how we think the Boston Celtics will deal with them on that end I think you're right I think you know Luca did did seem like he had to shoulder a lot of it. And there were times where I thought his legs might have kind of um, been in a little bit of trouble. But like you said, they left the Mavs shooters open and they said, hey, do you think you guys can keep up with our offense? Forget Phoenix's offense. Can you keep up with our offense? And once once the deck became stacked the other way and, and the Warriors, not the Warriors, the Warriors kept pressing. When the Mavs started pressing, um, their shots stopped falling. And, you know, they came up short. So... So kudos to the Warriors and, you know, the Mavs made a valiant run, but, you know, they, I think they're a piece or two short and they're going to have to go the offseason to improve some supporting casts around Luka. So that brings us to the NBA Finals then. We, we've kind of beaten around the bush a little bit, but let's get into it. 
I want to get your just initial thoughts, just looking at this series. How do you see it? And we'll get a little more specific after that. I think this is going to be very pretty basketball. I think the ball is going to be flying from side to side. I think both teams do a really good job of moving or without the ball. Both teams have shooting. Both teams have very malleable lineups. Um, I think the Celtics uh, can go small and match up with the Warriors better than anybody else in the NBA. I think that they have size across five positions that remains switchable and that remains with enough spacing to give the Warriors trouble on the other end as well. And I think for that reason, I'm liking the Celtics, despite not having home court, to come out on top on these finals. It's funny, you know, when we talked about this a few days ago, literally a few days ago, we, we knew the finals matchups were, I was pretty high on the Celtics. But the more I, you know, I, I dug into the data, more the more I watched some film of what the Warriors are doing this year, I'm finding myself more and more leading Warriors. And I'll, let's get into some specifics. So let's talk about the Warriors offense versus Celtics defense, right? The Warriors, they were kind of a mediocre offense by their standards this season. But in the playoffs, they've been incredible. And we got to talk about first why that is. It may be because they face some easy opponents. Like, like I think Jokic Nuggets were a bit overmatched. I think it's fair to say that even in the next two rounds, the teams were a bit overmatched and injured. So maybe they never face a truly elite defense yet. But what the Warriors do on offense is just unique. Nobody plays basketball like them. And you saw that just in the beginning of the Mavs series, the first couple of games. It takes time to adjust to the kind of schemes they're running. And what's really interesting is, as great as the Celtics have been in this run, they have not faced a team with the kind of ball movement and man movement that the Warriors run, right? Every other team is trying to mismatch hunt. They're trying to get KD on, on, on a weak guy. They're trying to get Giannis on a weak guy. The Miami Heat have more, a little bit more versatility in their offense, but they don't have the talent to you know, really punish a defense. The Warriors are going to demand something different out of the Celtics, and I think that right there gives them a bit of an advantage just coming into the series. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I hear you, and it does make sense, like, the pace of the game, the movement around the screens, the slipped screens, the backdoor cuts, everything that the Celtics are going to face in the finals are going to be at an even souped-up level when you're playing the Warriors. So... You know, maybe you can make an argument that the pace of the game, the speed of the game might be a little bit of a challenge for the Celtics to adapt to it. But I think they have the personnel for it. Yeah, I think they, more than any other team in the NBA, has the personnel. There's this crazy stat that if you go from 2015 to now, the only team with a winning record against the Warriors is the Boston Celtics. And of course, there's been personnel changes, but the core remains the same. And part of that is they have Marcus Smart to put on step. They're very switchable. The one thing we know about facing the Warriors is you have to be switchable to have a chance because they're just run too many actions and you can't give Steph daylight. So you can't afford a drop. Or if you try to trap, it can work to some degree, but not enough. They'll beat it with enough passing. They have too, they have too much good passing, too much good cutting to, to hope that something like trapping, like, like one of those gimmick defense will work. You, you basically need to switch against them. And there's no team that's more switchable one through five than the Boston Celtics. And they even can go to their sixth or seventh guys. They can go pretty deep in their roster and still maintain a one through five switch. The problem is, even if you do all of that, the Warriors still demand so much from a defense. Because, as you as you kind of hinted at, they will slip a screen before the switch can happen. They'll cut back door. They'll run some weird rub screen. They'll have Steph run through two screens. Then, you know give the ball to Draymond, then cut the other way around, and then Draymond will get that pass. You have to be committed for 24 seconds. And I don't know if the Celtics, while being the most capable defense, have faced an offense that's that ruthless as the Warriors one is. I'm not saying they can't stop them or at least contain it to some degree, but it'll be a challenge for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be easy. I Honestly, you know, even with the Celtics defense being the way it is, you know, they, I don't see them shutting down the Warriors offense. The Warriors offense... They're going to have one or two of these like avalanche runs, especially at home. And the Celtics are just going to be sitting there. They'll be doing everything perfectly. They'll have a hand up on the shooter. They'll be on every slip screen. They'll be on everybody the way they're supposed to be. And the Warriors will still hit the shot. And it will still 
wind up being the most deflating, discouraging thing. And the most important thing is that they have to realize that the game is 48 minutes and they have to keep their heads in it. And they can't let that run really just throw them off their game plan. I think one thing the Celtics have going for them is just because by virtue of their personnel and having some pretty good one-on-one players in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, they may be able to at least avoid the Warriors' most deadly lineup, at least from the Warriors' offensive standpoint, which is the one where Jordan Poole is playing, but they also have Draymond of the five. You saw last series against the Mavs, the Warriors started to go small, like putting Draymond out of the five, but then taking Poole off the floor to replacing him with Otto Porter, in part because of Luka's danger as a one-on-one player. And I could see that happening again here because maybe they don't want to deal with Jason Tatum, you know, hunting Poole on top of having Steph as well to, to, to kind of be a target. So that could be something that at least maybe slightly reduces the potency of the Warriors' offense and what it could be when they run the... I hate using this term, but the pool party lineup, as they say. Yeah, that that pool lineup is is really just a, a nightmare for defenses. They can all handle, create, and shoot, and they can really put up points in a very short spurt of time. But at the other side of it, like you said, now you're going to have multiple people that can be hunted in mismatches. You put Steph in actions, you put um, pool in actions, and then you kind of take advantage of the help that they send and wind up getting open shots. And the Celtics have enough passing and basketball IQ to kind of get good looks at the basket as well. I think we're, we're going to see an advantage. And I, I think, I think we should finish up the Warriors offense versus Celtics defense part of it and, and save some of this for later. But the size of the Celtics on the offensive end is also going to play a factor. Um, getting back to kind of like just the Celtics defensive matchups, like, you know, having Brown, and now Tatum with length and, and commitment and Marcus Smart, Defensive Player of the Year. Derek White's a plus defender. Horford is switchable, a plus defender. They're better rebounders. Robert Williams flies everywhere. They have more size from one through five when you just compare their best lineups. So Smart on Curry, you have Brown on Thompson, you have Tatum on Porter, Horford on Wiggins, RW on Green. Or even if you go small and put Derek White in there, they're not really missing out much. So... I think the size can make some of the shooting part of Golden State's offense um, at least a little more challenged. I, you know, it's like we said, they're not going to stop them. You just kind of want to make sure that they're getting worse shots than you are. And I think that in in a series, I think the Celtics, they're younger, they're they're more physical, and they're, I think they're taller, right? So they're going to have a chance on that end. I think Rob Williams, if he's the Rob Williams we saw in that Miami series, I think the Celtics are not going to be able to play him in this series. And I think that's a huge loss for them because they, they miss out on a couple of things. I mean, he's easily their best rim protector. But on top of that, he does give them that lob threat, which they're going to need to to use to beat some of these hedges, some of these traps that the, the Warriors throw from time to time. And I, I, I'm not really sure. You, know, you mentioned him guarding Green potentially, right? I guess that could work. It's not really the way they've been using him. They've kind of had him guarding yeah, I think you know, Horford would be on green I think uh Robert Williams would probably be flying around right like guarding Wiggins you think yeah well Possibly. helping a quarter maybe if if that's the lineup because uh, are you talking about the small lineup because the small lineup would have Wiggins at the four and I think I think then maybe you would see like Robert Green I'm mean, Robert Green Robert Williams helping out on I mean primarily guarding Grimmon Green but I think otherwise like if they're not going small then you'd stick Robert Williams on one of these role players like on the other side yeah, I mean, Looney. maybe Looney or Porter even. You know, honestly, Porter can keep you honest, but he's not some kind of elite marksman. Yeah, no, I, I think that's where they'd put him. Because you know, Draymond is really interesting because it's crazy the way that Draymond Green went from a guy who was once a near 40% three-point shooter to a guy who now doesn't even try to shoot. And so there's a temptation, I think, to just leave him open. One of the things the Warriors do really well in that situation is they just then use him as a screen setter for their elite shooters. And if your guys is dropped off away from Draymond, now it's a wide open three for whoever it is. So it's kind of tricky. You still need someone to actually guard him. So if Rob Williams is your primary help guy, I don't think you can put him on Draymond. But I'm actually wondering, given that we saw Rob Williams have a lot of trouble just keeping up with guards in that Miami series for no other reason besides the fact that he looks hurt, 
I wonder if Grant Williams might play a bigger role or if the Celtics will just go smaller, period, in this series and and not and kind of give away some of their size just to keep pace with the with, with the switching demands of, of facing the Warriors. You know, it's certainly possible, but I think Ime Udoka has kind of shown a willingness to remain big when others go small. Like, you know, against the Heat, maybe the issue was wasn't so much that he could get as hurt by it as he would be against the Warriors. But he did play Horford and Williams together when Williams was healthy against the smaller lineup in the Heat. You know, I, I'm curious to see how they kind of approach the green screen setting as well. You know, do both people just jump up on the on the shooter? Do they make Draymond make the right read from that hard roll into the middle of the court? You know, a lot of people kind of get burned when he does that and kind of kicks it out to the open shooters in the corners. But we've also seen it kind of play the other way with smarter teams who just say, all right, you're here 10 feet in front of the rim. What are you going to do with it? Go up. Go ahead. Take your best shot against Horford or Williams. And, and you know, that little bunny that, you know, some people might think is a good shot, He just he's not going up with it. And and it's contested at the rim. It's kind of an in-between shot anyway. So it's not an ideal shot. And, you know, to be honest, I can see the Celtics really forcing Golden State's hand and making Draymond be aggressive. If you look at the teams historically that have beaten the Warriors, they've all been able to switch, right? They've had this switchability, and that's been the scheme they've run. And I really don't think there's a team that's more capable of doing that than the Boston Celtics. What's interesting about the Celtics is it's not even the only pitch they can throw. They can run any other kind of defense you need them to do and to really be good against the Warriors. Like the way the Rockets were, though they didn't beat them, but they were this very switchable team. You need to be able to do other things too at times. And I think they have all that in their bag. The question will be, to me, really it comes down to the other end, which is how will the Celtics offense fare versus the Warriors defense? Because this Celtics team, they go through stretches where their offense looks incredible, other stretches where they look it looks completely anemic. And the Warriors, while they may not be as physical as some of the teams they faced before, they are an elite defensive team. They're a smart defensive team as well. They will leave guys open. And my worry with the Boston Celtics is if they do, let's say, let's say there's like a, a typical possession where the Boston Celtics try to get Jason Tatum isolated on someone like Steph and Steph will hedge and they'll make that little pocket pass. Someone like, you know, Marcus Smart will find the open guy. Do you trust the Celtics shooters to make enough threes? Because the Warriors will get to 115 a couple of times as you pointed out in this series. It's just going to happen. They're that kind of offense. I'm just not so convinced the Celtics can do the same. Yeah, I think that's the biggest question of the series. So if you're telling me that the Warriors can do what the Heat did at the end of the games to take Tatum completely out of it, force him to get rid of the ball and make Marcus Smart make the best decision with the ball, either whether that's shooting that open three or kicking it to like a Horford or even Jalen Brown in traffic, like, if Tatum cannot figure out a way to become a primary go-to option when the game really gets slowed down, really gets mucked up, then I think they're going to have a challenge closing out games. And I don't think that that is going to be a successful scenario for them. I, in that scenario, I don't think they, they have enough to beat the Warriors. I'm even looking beyond the clutch moments. I'm just saying, like, as a general strategy, if like, why can't the Warriors do to the Celtics what they did just did to the Dallas Mavericks. And I think Luka is a, a better offensive player than Jason Tatum, at least in terms of he's a better passer, nothing else, right? So he's getting guys clean looks. Those guys just missed those looks. If I'm the Warriors, I look at the Celtics team and say, hey, these guys don't even have the shooters that the Mavs had. And I look at guys like Al Horford. I mean, I'll, I'll live with him shooting. I look at Marcus Smart, I'll live with him shooting. Derek White, I mean, he, he can't buy a shot sometimes, right? Yeah, he has the biggest, like, Oh my God, he's a he's a positive role player. Oh my God, get him off the court. Like, yeah, he's yeah. the biggest swing on that team. But yeah. like, I think where they differ from the Mavs is so I I don't think the Mavs are a bad defensive team, but they didn't have the size that the Celtics do, and I think that size plays both ways. So one one obviously is defense, but the other one is offensively. Now the Celtics are going to I think demolish these guys on the glass. You know. Looney's their only big man. You get him in foul trouble. Who's coming off the bench? Who's going to secure these second chance possessions, points in the paint and all these different things that I think the Celtics can maybe not have as great of a shooting night and still get away with it just from extra possessions. 
Yeah, another thing is when they go big, the Celtics have the advantage of not really giving the Warriors a really clean way to play their optimal lineups. Because, I mean, they have two big men at any given time. So if you're putting Green at the five, that means one of your guards is guarding someone that's a very big wing or literally a power forward or center. So, yeah, and they would be stuck on someone like Brown. Or, you know, even from the offensive perspective, whoever that is is going to crash the glass. They're going to pick up an offensive board and go straight up. There's no way that, you know, Poole, Thompson, Curry, any of these guys are boxing out Grant Williams on a regular basis. That's just not going to happen. Now, on the other hand, though, I think that Emiodoka has been a bit too slow to go to the small lineups. I, and I get that they have this advantage, this size advantage, and having two bigs and versatility because Horbrook can hit threes that effectively it means it so they almost have only one big in terms of paint clogging. But the Celtics, the entire playoffs, have looked at their best offensively when there's been only one big on the floor. And usually that means it's Al Horford because he can stretch the other team out out to the three-point line. And it just makes the lane a little bit more clear because we know one thing about the Warriors. They are extremely ruthless when it comes to leaving guys open and protecting the paint. They've done it time and time again, Back, you know, going back to the Memphis Grizzlies with Tony Allen. And they're not going to hesitate to do that again here. So I'm not sure how much you can play around with playing these big lineups with two guys when it's just making it harder for for guys like Tatum, guys like Brown to get to the rim and finish. That versatility is why I think the Celtics have an advantage. though. So, like, they will be able to go small if they need to. But I honestly don't think that this big lineup is going to be as exploitable as you make it sound. So when I think back to the finals where the Cavs actually beat the Warriors, right, they had Tristan Thompson absolutely demolishing the Warriors inside. And you're talking about a lineup that had, you know, these guys even more so in their prime than they are now. So you're telling me that, A, like Tristan Thompson will be able to do that, a mobile, athletic, defensive-geared big, but Robert Williams, if healthy, cannot? I find that hard to believe. Now, if Robert Williams isn't as mobile as we would have liked to seen, then, yes, this can pose a challenge. And I think then... Ime Udoka's hand will get, is going to be forced to be playing a smaller lineup. And then, and then you, might, you might as well just hang it up because then you're trying to run with the Warriors. Yeah, but you think about those Cavs teams, right? So in 2015, when they ran Mozgov and Thompson, those guys dominated until the Warriors uncovered, almost by accident, the death lineup, right? And that was the end of that series. 2016... Love goes down. So for a good part of that series, they had just really one big playing. And then at the end of the series, again, it was really Love playing the five, not Thompson playing the five. So they kept that spacing as much as they could because it's just that hard to score against the Warriors. So I just wonder, I, I, I recognize that the Celtics have this versatility and they have a size advantage. But usually when you're facing a good defense, you need to maximize spacing. And I think that Udoka has been a bit slow to do that. I don't think you can afford to do that against a team that's this good offensively on the other end. So you're going to need to get to 115 a couple of times. Can you do that playing two conventional bigs? I lean toward no. I think they should go early rather than later to a smaller unit, even if it means sacrificing some of their size. Because I I still think they will be bigger than the Warriors overall across the board. That's a great point. I mean, yeah, you know, I talk about this like a big lineup versus a small lineup. Like their Celtics small lineup is actually smaller than the Warriors small lineup. It's not. Like you said, when we compare the two smaller lineups, um, person to person, there's there's a clear size advantage and athleticism advantage on the Celtics side across the board. So they'll play this series, right? And they're going to see what Robert Williams looks like. And if he can't keep up, then you're right. They're going to have to make a quick adjustment into Horford. And I think the Celtics do have the coaching staff to make these adjustments. Keep in mind, you know, these guys now have an extra day between the games. There, There's going to be so many punches and counter punches and adjustments and readjustments that we're going to see these lineups kind of go back and forth multiple times through the course of the series, you know, depending on who's going to be available, who's hurt, who's not hurt. And we'll see kind of like whose hand gets forced. Do the Warriors, are they unable to play Poole? Or are the Celtics unable to play Robert Williams? Which way is this going to go? Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. And I think what adds a little bit of extra juice to this series is the fact that I think 
there's some real legacies that can be affected by the outcome of this NBA Finals. So I want to start with the guy that I, I don't think gets nearly enough recognition for this Warriors run, and that's Steve Kerr. I, I think we all acknowledge that Steve Kerr's a great coach, but he doesn't get enough credit for being the guy who put together one of the most unique and devastating offenses in NBA history. Right? It's one of those things that other teams around the NBA can't replicate even if they tried to, but very few even bother trying. It's complicated. It demands a lot of its players. It requires your best players having certain talents and most don't, but this team does, and he's maximized that. And on the other end, this Warriors team pioneered switching on the, in their own right. It, it's kind of ironic that they basically pioneered the defense that ultimately is the only way to stop their offense, but they really did. And I think Steve Kerr should get a lot of credit for that. Steve Kerr, 100%, you know, not talked about enough with the greatest coaches of our generation. To be honest, like, he did inherit a team that was on the upswing with Mark Jackson, but he essentially just took away the ceiling. You know what I mean? He just said, go ahead. This is how we're going to play the ball. We have a generational talent. No one was playing this way before. No one was okaying taking shots from 33 feet out. No one was really encouraging the spacing, the cutting, the free-flowing offense the way that he was. And recognizing that you have a particularly specialized superstar that can really make these cuts, make the space a completely different kind of geography on the court was something that the predecessor wasn't able to do. Mark Jackson wasn't able to see that. He could just rewrite the rules of the game. No question, man. I, I mean, he's changed basketball. Let's be honest here. You know, as much as we give credit for like Steph and Draymond for changing modern basketball, Kerr's right up there. Yeah, and you know he, he has truly revolutionized some of what we do on the offensive end. And on the other spectrum, from the Celtics side of things, you know this is a huge moment to define the legacy of Danny Ainge and even Brad Stevens, I guess. You know, like they, these guys have taken their licks through the media, rightfully so. Initially, praise of acquiring this gigantic war chest of picks from the Nets. Oh my God, what a colossal trade failure! Look at all these picks Danny Ainge has. Look at all these opportunities to go out and acquire a major player. Oh, Anthony Davis is available. Oh no, we're we're not going to sacrifice the picks for him. Oh, um, Kyrie's available. All right, let's go get him. All of these all of these decisions that were made are accumulating in this finals. And ultimately, I think what people would have said had they not made it to the finals, had they not have a chance to win a championship, potentially even win the championship, is did they did they maximize all of their assets? What's fascinating about that is they were criticized, the Celtics organization and, and Ainge in particular for effectively not trading one of these two guys. Most usually it's Jalen Brown that's thrown in to get one of these players who may have just bolted. And now by virtue of keeping these players and keeping this core together, they were able to build something and build naturally and now have the foundation to potentially be competitive for the next decade. And even the guys that some of the guys they lost, they brought back, you know, Brad Stevens this offseason, he brought back Daniel Tice. He brought back Al Horford and those guys are having big roles on this team. So I think Danny Ainge, for all the criticism he gets, he got the two most important things right. He landed the draft picks of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, and then he didn't give up on those guys. So he deserves a lot of credit, regardless of the outcome, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? These This team has taken a couple big licks from a roster-building perspective. You know, like they, they did trade a lottery pick for Kyrie Irving who decided to just up and leave in free agency. Then on the other side of it, you know, you bring in Kemba Walker as the replacement and, you know, you think that he's a better fit. He says the right things. He's a culture guy. He's clutch. He's won a men's national championship in college. And then his needs give out and you got to move on from him too. So they've had wasted assets. And despite that, they continue to build this team in such a unique way. And, and they were almost headstrong to the point, you know, where they were not going to trade one of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And the idea of having switchable wings as the predominant, you know, structure of your roster, I think he just held on to that. And he knew if you put the right pieces around it, that this is what the ceiling could be. And I think he's made 
some tremendous decisions along with Brad Stevens. You know, to add to what you're saying, Rahul, don't forget about the Gordon Hayward situation. It was considered a huge free agency win for the Boston Celtics. And then this man has a freak injury on the opening night and was never the same again. And still, they've lost him ultimately. And they were able to more or less continue their trajectory. This is like their fourth shot at getting to the NBA Finals. And this time they finally did it. Yeah, and some of these later round picks, you know, I know they missed on a few, Romeo Langford and stuff like that, but Peyton Pritchard has given them minutes in this playoff series. Grant Williams is the most probably annoying basketball player on their team, aside from Marcus Smart, and he's given them some tough minutes. He's been <laughs> he's been good at the corner three and provides some physicality. So, you know, they started from a place with a lot of assets. They had a lot of misfortune with the use of some of these assets, but they ultimately were able to survive through some prudent decision-making by both Ainge and Stevens. And I think also, lastly, just to kind of touch on that Stevens point, like, this guy was the coach of the Celtics. He was a good coach. You know, everyone spoke highly of him. He had some great plays running out of, like, timeouts, this, that. But I think they all knew that they needed a different voice in there. I think they knew they needed a more dominant, aggressive, in-your-face kind of coach. And for him to be able to recognize to take the step back, move up to general manager while giving the reins to Ime Odoka, I think that was that was a huge story in of itself, and it really has worked out for these guys. And then we got to talk about the legacy of the guys themselves. Jason Tatum, I mean, he can potentially at the end of this playoffs say that he went through Kevin Durant, followed by Giannis, followed by Jimmy, followed by Steph. I mean, I don't even know where that would put him in a historical perspective, but at least... As of right now, we would have to say he's one of the best players in the NBA. And I I know we kind of say that, but when we actually rank guys, it's very hard to put Tatum like as a top three or four player, but sometimes results speak for themselves. And it's one of those situations where if he does it, what can you say about Pat the guy on his back and say, hey, man, I guess you are that good. Yeah, how many top five guys are in the top five? I mean, it's so hard to kind of <laughs> yeah. make these like true, real determinations when you're talking about um, such elite level talents that are so close to each other and kind of like their skills and how they can impact the game. But like you said, the way you take the torch and the crown or whatever is you have to snatch it from the guy that's carrying it right now. And that guy carrying it this season was Giannis. Before that was KD and so forth. So, you know, these guys are all battling to say that they're the best players in the NBA. The only way really to be able to do that is to go up head to head and actually be able to take down from that person. And Tatum this year will have a chance to, like you said, go through a gauntlet of players that are in our so-called top five and potentially come out on top. Now, would I like to see a little bit more consistency occasionally from Tatum? I still think that's a fair point to make. I still think there are fair points to make about how the ball can be taken out of his hands at the end of games sometimes. You will never say that about Giannis. You know, whether he's charging into you, making these refs make that plus or minus call on the offensive charge or not, He's not giving that ball up. You know what I mean? Like, it's him. It's his team. I'm going to do this, whether it's successful or not. I think I need to see a little bit more of that from Tatum, especially in this series when he's going up against these guys. But regardless, huge legacy bump, huge pass the torch moment. I think he's right up there with the rest of these guys. And I think if you're making your team moving forward, he is two after Luka, maybe. I mean, we're not counting Giannis. Oh, my God. Sorry. All right. He's three after Luka and Giannis? Like, come on. He's right up there. Yeah. No, no. I think that's fair. I have, to, I have to really think about where I put Tatum in terms of where I want to build a team around him. But, I mean, the evidence is there that Tatum right now, you can go to NBA Finals with him as your main piece. So, you know, proof is in the pudding again. But we got to talk. We're talking about legacies. There's one man beyond any other whose legacy, even just by getting to this finals, is, I think, just boosted, and that's Steph Curry. So I'll let you do your Steph Curry take before I do mine. I, I'm just curious what you think. A lot of the, the true upper pantheon guys have made a finals run or a championship run in not just one segment of their career. They've almost had, like, well, we could call them twin peaks or even three peaks for some of these players. So like when we talk about Kobe, he had his Kobe Shaq run and then he had his Gasol Kobe runs. 
when we talk about um, Tim Duncan, he's won a championship as the main guy, as a support guy, and so forth. Jordan had two separate three-peats. So when we're talking about, and even LeBron, right? He won with the Heat, and then he went back home and won with the Cavs. So for him to kind of supplement that initial three finals run with a separate run, and now keep in mind, no more Kevin Durant there either. Draymond Green, we don't need you making that happen in real time. That that has to supplement Curry's legacy. And when you start comparing him to people like LeBron, like he's not the traditional wing best player in the NBA kind of mold. But when you talk about winning, winning in two separate eras, kind of, you have to bring him to that conversation. He is the guy that made this happen, right? It's not somebody else. Well, what's really relevant then is the recent conversation where Draymond Green was talking about Steph Curry getting doubled seven times as much as Kevin Durant in some of those finals and Durant responding on Twitter saying that it's 100% not true. Well, by the way, the statistics show that he was doubled in 2018 finals 20 times more than Kevin Durant was, which I, I think frames this discussion in an interesting way because Steph Curry is the guy who, by every statistical measure, the most important player, even on those teams. And they actually played better with Steph Curry there than when he wasn't there. And the opposite was the case with Kevin Durant. They played better without Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's what made them unbeatable, but Steph Curry is the engine of that team. And I think for too long now, he's been disrespected as a playoff performer. Yes, 2015 finals, 2016 finals, he was subpar. Outside of that, he's been a very good playoff performer. And by the way, there are many greats who've had a couple of bad NBA finals. LeBron's had them in 2007 and 11. Kobe's had them in 2004 and I would argue 2010. And yet they're considered all-time greats, right? People are entitled to have those kind of negative series. Forget the outcome of this NBA finals. By getting to this finals, that means that he has been a superstar on six NBA finals teams. That already puts him in rare company. And if you're talking about his all-time ranking, he has to be above Kevin Durant now. And I and it's, it's interesting that I'm saying that because I've always, I guess in my mind, just thought of Kevin Durant as a better basketball player. But from a legacy standpoint, I don't know how you can make an argument for Kevin Durant. Steph has double MVPs. He's won a ring without Kevin Durant, which is a big kind of notch in his belt. Through He's Kevin Durant. Through- through Kevin Durant, absolutely, yeah. He beat Kevin Durant and got him to join his team. And then he's been a double amount of finals now than Kevin Durant has been in. So, and let's not forget, you know, as much as we, we shit on him for 2016, he still was the best player on a team that won 73 games. No other player in NBA history, not even Michael Jordan can say that, right? So his legacy to me is secure. Oh, yeah, and by the way, let's not forget that he's the guy who single-handedly has changed the way basketball is played. And he's unquestionably the best at the most important skill in basketball at every level, which is shooting by any measure, three point shooting, free throw shooting. Look at it. He's the best. So he is in that upper echelon pantheon guys. I actually personally have him right now, somewhere in that eight to 12, eight to 13 sort of range, like along with guys. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I really feel this way. Like Duncan, like Shaq, like Hakeem, like Kobe. He's in that mix of guys to me. And I don't know exactly know where he ranks. I had to think about it more, but that's how special he's been. I think one question, you know, he's been a transcendent star. He's changed the way the game is played. And now he has sustainability. He's brought, you know, you could say these are two separate teams that he's brought to the to the finals, even though they're the no same, same kind of core. But this is two separate kind of, you know, time periods and stages of his career. So, you know, he's a likable guy. People like to play with him. He plays basketball the right way. He makes ridiculous shots. He has transcendent talent. And, you know, he's a little guy. He's, he's not in the mold of some of these guys. You know, you look at Kevin Durant, you look at LeBron James, you look at Shaq. They're not relatable human beings. They're, they're not like you can't look at them and be like anyone of us on earth have a shot to do anything like that. But a guy like Steph, he's he's tall. Obviously, he's taller than us. He's obviously more athletic than all of us. But he's still a smaller guy going up against mountains and kind of changing the game this way. You know, and it's. It's something that makes him such a likable guy and such like uh, a person to rally behind for for a lot of our generation. The other thing we have to acknowledge now is he is effectively the second greatest point guard of all time. I think he's past Oscar Robertson. And I know Oscar is a legend and icon in this game. And trust me, I am not one 
to disrespect history, but I don't know how you can put the resumes against each other and not say that Steph Curry has surpassed Oscar Robertson. So that means that at one of the most storied positions in basketball, which is the point guard position, he's only behind Magic fucking Johnson. And that's how crazy this man's career has been. And the crazy thing is he can still add to it. Yeah. Um, you know, some people might have thought that he wouldn't exactly age well if he's not be able to be as quick and as fast and move around things as, as well as he could have before. But he's still generating the same amount of gravity, still getting his shots up. And I think he's become a bit more physical in his later years. He's had a little bit more tone. He's finishing better around the basket than he ever has before. And I think a lot of the physicality might have been able to impose on young Steph. I don't think that stuff happens like that anymore. So the other thing I want to bring up in terms of legacies, and, and this Rahul is something you brought up, is just where do the Warriors now rank amongst other modern dynasties like the Bulls, the Spurs, and the Lakers? You know, I, it's hard to say that now up front before we know the results of this kind of finals. Uh, I think winning this championship would really bring them up into the caliber of like the Spurs and that Shaq and Kobe Laker period. I don't think anyone is ever going to be, you know, from our lifetime speaking. So like I'm really only including like the Bulls, Spurs, Lakers and Warriors. The Bulls being the Jordan Bulls, Spurs being the Duncan Spurs, Lakers being Shaq and Kobe and then Kobe Gasol and now our Warriors now. So I, I, you can't ever top the Bulls when we're talking about dynasty rankings unless you have the chips to back it up. But I think if you're talking about sustainability, being into the final six out of eight years and kind of cementing multiple championships within a certain core, I think they're right up there with like the Spurs and Lakers. But I think they have to win this title in order to really truly belong in that same sentence. I think they're just under there right now. Yeah, I, I would agree with that last part because you're looking at three championships right now for them, which is less than the Spurs five, the Lakers five in the modern era, of course, and the Jordan, and the Jordan Bulls six. So and, and there's a pretty big difference there. They need to win one to get in that real discussion. But anyway, enough of the boring basketball part. We bring <laughs> on Rahul for one reason. My man knows more about betting than anybody I know. So Rahul, let's talk about some betting on this NBA finals. All right, let's start with some serious odds, all right? So first and foremost, we'll keep it bread and butter. Warriors minus 150, Celtics plus 130. So what that means is that the Warriors, in order to win $100, you'd have to bet 150. And on the other hand, if you put $100 in the Celtics, you'll actually win 130. So Celtics are a slight dog uh, when it comes to the series. And I think that makes sense. Warriors are more of an experienced team. They have home court. Uh, Celtics have kind of looked a little bit shaky some at, at the end of these games. So I think a lot of the public perception uh, really is going to be backing that Warriors. But something is a little bit off about the line, in my opinion, when you're getting a Warriors, their public perception, their home court advantage, and then you're only making them a minus 150 favorite against a team on their first finals appearance. It kind of doesn't quite add up in my head. So what you're saying is that Vegas is putting these odds at this number in part because probably the Warriors are getting a little bit more money on them because of their status as being a popular team. Not to mention being not that far from Vegas. San Francisco is much closer. All California teams get that boost in general. So maybe the series, like Vegas' real opinion on the series, that it's a lot more even than it appears by these odds. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the projections kind of say that, right? So, I mean... <laughs> The most egregious one being 538 has like the Celtics oh, as come on. 80% Please. favorite. 80% to win favorite. Yeah, that's kind of ridiculous that's... considering they don't even have home court. But at the same time, like, you know, I think a lot of a lot of smart people, a lot of data uh, have seen the Celtics before they truly became the Celtics. Like even when we were talking about in January when they were a 500 team, they had like double the odds of the Phoenix Suns to make it to the finals, which everyone laughed at and lo and behold they're in the finals and the suns didn't even make it uh past luca so True. i think there's i think there's stuff to be you know bore out by the numbers um i do, i do worry about the length and the physicality of the last couple of series is for the uh celtics but i think these teams match up fairly evenly i think celtics having more size and the warriors having more experience is almost a wash and Give me the plus money, I think. I'm not sure where you're sitting on it, but plus 130 seems pretty reasonable. I think you might even get better series odds if you wait after game one. I'm not sure that 
the Celtics after that game seven will have a letdown here. I mean, four days off, maybe they'll have time to kind of, you know, dig deep, kind of get some rest and come back. But historically, after a pretty rough game seven, um, people come out pretty flat in game one. Yeah, we saw that just last series against Miami. Now, the Celtics didn't quite come off flat at that, but they ran out of gas. I actually think, in general, when you face the Warriors and they're at home, you bet on the Warriors of that first game, or even first two games. Because well, it's minus three and a half. It's, it's a short line. I don't get that's, it. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Because it's, it's an adjustment to face a team that plays basketball entirely different than any of the teams the Celtics have played so far. Like you can, The coaches can tell them, oh, these guys play differently. But you have to get smacked in the face and see it sometimes to really adjust. Every team that's ever faced the Warriors has said this. It, it just like it overwhelms you almost, right? So I, I would definitely put money on the Warriors for game one at the very least. Yeah, I think I'm leading Warriors first half um, on this game one of the finals. I think, like you said, that that effect will will definitely um, catch the Celtics not off guard. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. They, it'll take a while for them to adjust to the speed of the game, and Oracle is going to be hopping, obviously. So yeah, I like the Warriors to come out pretty strong game one. I I feel more comfortable taking the first half. I think that minus three and a half scares me. I think that's another fishy line, so I'm going to stay away from that full game. But I'm going to take some on the Celtics plus 130 now for the series. And then if they lose game one, I'm going to add to that position for game two, hopefully at, at better odds. Oh, um, what about the finals MVP odds? Yeah, so, you know, that's another alternate way to kind of bet these series. There's obviously a clear favorite, the Warriors being minus 50 and their best player being Stephen Curry. So you can get him at minus 115, which means you have bet $115 to win 100 Tatum's plus 175, best player on the on the Celtics, obviously. And then then you kind of going up pretty significantly in the odds. So Brown is plus eleven hundred, Thompson's plus twenty two hundred, and Green's plus twenty two hundred. I I can't see a world where if the Warriors win, Steph doesn't get an MVP. I think that A, he's gonna be gunning for it because that's a big knock on him so far. And B, um, who else is going to really be able to be consistently carrying the load here? I mean, Clay's not the same Clay as he once was. Draymond's more of a of a background kind of outside the stats kind of impact guy. So I think if you're going to be betting the Warriors to win, you might be able to find shorter odds and just taking the Stephen Curry MVP odds as a better bet than the Warriors to win the series. There's also just the narrative factor. I mean, <laughs> people think that he should have won the MVP 2015 when Iguodala egregiously was awarded the MVP. So I just find it very hard to imagine that if the Warriors win, that anybody besides Steph, especially because now we understand basketball, we understand they're not going to give it to anybody. They're not going to give it to anybody else. There's no way. And he's going to want it. So he's not giving up like those late game free throws. He's definitely going to get his stats and thing on the, on this series. On the other hand, I will say this, like I think if the Celtics win, I don't think Tatum is much of, is as big of a shoe in for the NBA finals MVP as Curry is on the other side. I think the Warriors are going to sell out to stop Tatum in certain points of the game. I think we've seen him against the Heat be able to be taken out, drift in and out sometimes. And I think Jalen Brown can average 25 points a game, six rebounds, six assists, put up some numbers, maybe has a big final game, closeout game, something like that. And Bro, we could be, we could be looking at the Jalen Brown MVP award. If if Jalen Brown is having the guy with the MVP numbers and Tatum has disappeared, these guys got zero chance of winning this final. So they're not going to win the MVP <laughs> anyway. So. That's fair. That's fair. But yeah, I guess, I, I mean, I'm staying away from most of the final MVP odds. I think I'd just rather out take the Celtics. And I don't think Tatum's as big of a shoe in, like I said. So I think I'll skip, skip it all together. Maybe throw a little change on Jalen Brown just to, just to kind of have some fun with it. Um, some other fun bets. So... We'll do player props real quick, and then kind of we'll go back to series stuff. So player props-wise, you can get pretty much at even money. Clay Thompson over 20 points per game. Um, I feel like that's a low number. I think if they're unable to play pool because of defensive reasons, Clay's going to have to pick up some of the load of the, sh- of the scoring. I think that might not be a, a terrible idea to bet. Um, then there's that's a couple other. You, you like that one, right? Yeah, that's, I like that. That's good thinking. Yeah, it's just, you know, if Pool like Pool A, if he can play, then Thompson's not going to average 20 points a game, right? But 
if you take away pool because of defensive issues, then you have to put more minutes and stuff on Clay. Clay's going to have to shoot more, pick up some of the scoring load. He can get to 20. I mean, if he has one game of 30, then he should be pretty much set from that perspective. Then we got a couple other higher odds ones. So Curry to score over 25 points per game and the Warriors to win is plus 145. Tatum over 25 and Celtics win is plus 200. Brown over 25 and Celtics to win is plus 380. On this one, I kind of like the Tatum 25 and Celtics win odds, 200. I think, I think like you said, if the Celtics win, he's going to have to have some big games. The only thing I'm concerned about is some of the consistency issues we talked about. But the plus 200 is pretty good. That's, you know, you just kind of need it to hit one three times. So, Yeah, I, I just see no way that the Celtics win without Tatum scoring 25 points per game. So if you're going to bet the Celtics winning the series, you might as well just take this and get yourself plus 200. And yeah. plus two, what was it, plus 130? Yeah. And then, plus and, then, and then on the other side, you can kind of do the points leader thing, which is both teams. So series... Uh, points leader Tatum is minus 125, Curry is plus 150, Bronze plus 850, and Poole is 100 to 1. <laughs> I had to put that one in there. <laughs> That's just cause, hilarious. Just because he, he might come out and score 40 in the game and you have no idea what happened. The funny thing is, in a world where he does play a lot of minutes, which, as we've said repeatedly in this part, we don't think is that likely, but if it does happen, he's absolutely capable of scoring. A lot of points, so yeah, it's seriously, not so an if, insane thing. Oh yeah, if you get a couple of Celtics blowouts, and then he's just there in garbage time, picking up like thirty points a game. Like you can see this kind of yeah. happening. Um, <laughs> but Tatum minus one twenty five is probably pretty good. He's the primary scorer on the Celtics. Steph is way more unselfish. Tatum yeah. at Tatum to win uh, to have the most points of the series seems like a pretty good bet. I think at minus one twenty five. And then that kind of brings us to the last couple of props, um, total games for this series. So if you're betting that this is going to be a long series, um, seven games is plus 180, six games is plus 200, and then we'll just throw in five games is plus 290, four games is plus 650. So I don't see any chance of this being like a four-game series, obviously. But I think if I like the Celtics, I like them in six. I'm not seeing them going into Oracle and winning a game seven. They've already done that enough. <laughs> I don't think they, they yeah. have another one of those in them. So I think if they do make it to a game <laughs> six, they probably will close it out at home. That might be a worthwhile bet. Or conversely, then, you know, if if the Warriors win 4-2, you'd hit that one also. So I think that's a decent idea. Then I have two series spread bets. So because the lines are so even, minus 150 and minus 130, the spread bets are also kind of skewed. So if you wanted to take Celtics plus one and a half, you'd have to lay one hundred and eighty dollars to win a hundred. And if you wanted to bet Warriors plus one and a half, you'd have to bet two fifty to win a hundred. And that just means that if it goes to a seven game series, you win your bet regardless if your team wins or loses game seven. I don't see the value in in either of these, being that they're such high high prices. Yeah, me neither. But fun to learn about them anyway. Yeah. So you know. To sum it up, I have some on the Celtics plus 130 series odds. I might push on them if they lose game one. I might throw a little bit on Thompson over 20 points per game. And I think I might t- throw a little bit on Tatum to be the points leader for the series. What do you think? I think those are all very logical, especially if you're coming into this from the standpoint that you think the Celtics are favored. My only issue with all of that is that I'm not entirely sure I agree <laughs> with that, which, which brings us to the last point. So give me your... Final predictions. Who Celtics wins in how many in games? Six. Celtics and six. Celtics and six. Yeah, I think I think they take game two. Uh, I think they win their two home games. It goes three one back to Oracle, three two. Then they close out at the at the Boston Garden, whatever they call it, TD Garden. I hate that they call it the Garden. It's not the Garden. There's only one Garden. Yeah. But anyway, I know. Game six I, I, in Boston. I, honestly, that's one of the most annoying things to me as a Knicks fan. Yeah. It's the Garden. Come yeah. on. Then There's no, one that's Garden. Not, that's not you know, the Garden. That, yeah, yeah. And Madison Square Garden is the garden across sports, not just in basketball. So yeah, yeah. please, but well, we'll we'll dream of our Knicks one day being in the finals again. It's been no, yeah, over twenty stay, years, but stay dreaming on that. That's not happening anytime in our lifetime. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I I I think I want the Celtics to win this series, and I would really have picked them if not for the fact that the first two games are an oracle. I just think it's going to be really difficult for any team to adjust to playing in Oracle Arena 
if you haven't faced them before in a playoff series, especially having faced such different teams before that. So I just see the Warriors going up 2-0. And then I believe the Celtics enough that they could force a Game 7. But like you said before, winning a Game 7 on the road in San Francisco, not Oracle, but San Francisco, is difficult. It's Of course, it's happened before in 2016. But what's the name of their stadium? I've been calling it the Oracle all all, all uh, podcasts. That's a great question, actually. Hold on. Chase Center. It's the Chase Center. My bad. It's the Chase Center. So Edit there you that go. Out. Replace the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> totally keep it in. Um, yeah. No, but I I just feel like you know it has happened before. Of course, in 2016, the Cavs won Game Seven on the road in Oracle, but. A lot of things had to go right for them in that game and just that series in general. And I just don't see that happening again. So for that reason, I'm picking Warriors in seven. All right. Well, we'll see. Hell yeah. What you got got going on? What are you going to be doing? I'm going to be sitting at my theater that I built specifically to watch basketball in. (laughs) I'm just going to be watching this thing lazily there. Nice. I'm going to try to convince Drew to come through. Yes. Yeah. This weekend, let's let's get our boys to come through. And uh, let's let's watch some basketball. All right. For all you out there, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. And thank you, Rahul, for sharing your betting insights and your insights into this series. Thanks for having me on. It was great to talk to you guys. And all you guys out there, if you have any questions or comments, you think that we're being too harsh or too nice to these teams, please hit us up at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com or find us on social media. Until next time, guys, peace out.